Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Hello, everyone. Um, let me explain uh, what's going on here. I know that you're uh, not used to seeing me uh, record a sermon uh, like this. Um, I am working remotely from Texas this past week. I took Abby and the boys to come and visit with her parents, so visiting the in-laws. And in preparation for that, I, um, I recorded a sermon um, about a week ago that I intended to be used for this morning. And um, even in that sermon, I, I, I joked that, you know, knowing the pace of our news cycle, uh, that th- this sermon will be outdated uh, by the time it's being viewed. And, um, and I was proven right. Uh, I expected um, developments from the COVID stuff, um, but what I didn't foresee um, is where our nation finds ourselves, and I just I felt like I felt like it's too big. Um, we're hurting too much for me not to preach to this. In fact, the sermon I was going to preach would have felt uh, callously indifferent um, were we to use it. So here I am, um, locked up in in a back bedroom, uh, looking at a cell phone. I didn't I didn't bring a coat or tie, so I'm just in a polo. Um, speaking to um, this moment. Um, I I did not, I could never imagine that um, just in the span of a few days, our country uh, would be burning with flames emblematic of our raging hatred. But this is where we are, and I felt the need to put together an impromptu sermon uh, to speak into the moment. Um, it feels overwhelming. I'm going to be honest. In my worst, most cynical moments, it feels hopeless. Uh, but all I know to do is my small part as a pastor to prophetically speak into the chaos, hoping that it brings some level of comfort to those who need comfort and a level of challenge to those who need to be challenged. Um, so this is my attempt to do just that. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, I always feel the weight of preaching, but confess to you and those watching an extra measure of weightiness um, because I think our entire country is feeling this weight. Would you use these words to bring comfort to the mourning, to heal the brokenhearted, to convict the arrogant, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, Lord, to lift up Jesus as the hope of humanity. He alone is our peace. He alone is our boast. May it be so in the next few minutes. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, so two simple points here with this passage. We're going to look at love's foundation and love's application. Let's begin with love's foundation. Verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So a little context here I think would help. Uh, this is the third and final encounter that Jesus has had with the religious establishment of the day. Um, he has debated uh, politics with the Pharisees and Herodians. He has debated the resurrection with the Sadducees. And now it's the scribes' turn to debate Jesus. And the scribes' uh, area of expertise was the law. They were the guardians of the law. They were the executioners of the law. So uh, they have a question for Jesus about the law. They approach him and ask a very simple question. Which commandment of the law is the greatest? Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So Jesus chooses the Shema as the greatest commandment. The Shema was Israel's foundational uh, confession of faith with um with um, from Deuteronomy 6, where Jews would literally pray it uh, morning and evening to remind themselves of what they believe to be true and what they should do. The What is true is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that may not seem like much of a statement to you, but um, historically speaking, this is a revolutionary concept to the ancient world. Um, all ancient religions were polythe polytheistic, uh, there were many gods with different attributes, different roles. Uh, many were prayed to, many were sacrificed to. But what made Israel controversial and unique is their claim of monotheism. There is only one true and living God, and it is the God of Israel. What was revealed to Abraham was a God who viewed himself not as one God among other gods, nor even the most powerful God of all the gods, but indeed as the only God. And so this was Israel's central claim, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, if it is true that Yahweh of Israel is the one true God, then by implication, it means that all of us must necessarily treat him as such. And that's where the Shema goes. The what is true is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is what you are to do in response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, note that he uses the... Um, the language of love. It does not say you shall obey the Lord your God. It does not say you shall submit to the Lord your God. It does not say that you shall confess the Lord as God. It says you shall love. The greatest commandment is a, great, is a commandment for our love. And this is consistent with how the Bible views us as image bearers. We are creatures who love. 
perhaps a contemporary word that makes more sense of that is worship. Animals don't worship. People worship. This is unique to us. And this worship impulse cannot be turned off. You are worshiping something. You are in love with something ultimately. The fall of humanity was not the end of humanity's love. It was the disordering of humanity's love such that what we should love ultimately, God, we don't. And those things which we should not love ultimately, our idols, we do. And so the greatest commandment is really simple. God wants our love back. He bids humanity to love the one true God ultimately and completely. And I do mean completely. Look at the um, breadth of this language. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, every part of you in undivided love for God. Now we might say, does that mean I can't love my spouse, my children, my friends, my vocation, my hobby? No, this means that by loving God, ultimately, you will love those things rightly. And that is why this is the greatest foundational commandment of God. If God is loved ultimately, then humanity's love is properly ordered and virtue falls into place. And so the greatest commandment is very simple. A foundational love of God above all else, except that Jesus doesn't stop there. What he has said thus far was the standard answer of the day, something that the scribes would have expected him to say, would have agreed with it. They would have said, great answer, Jesus. You passed the test. But Jesus does something surprising here, something revolutionary here. He takes the Shema and he extends it further. Let's look next at love's application. Verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this, of course, is the what is commonly referred to as the golden rule. It appears almost inconspicuously in Leviticus 19.18. It certainly does not hold, hold the prominence that the Shema does in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But there is a reason why Jesus singles it out. Every religion, every moral code, every philosophy, every ethic includes some form of the golden rule. 20 years before Jesus, a famous Jewish leader, Rabbi Hillel, um, famously said this, the entire Torah is summed up in this. What you don't want done to you, don't do to your neighbor. Again, the same idea. Um, in Rome, at the time of Jesus, the pagans spoke of the golden rule in different forms and ways. For ages, this principle, the principle behind the golden rule, has been a standard ethic even to this day. In fact, in 1993, um, the Parliament of World Religions declared uh, the golden rule as the one global ethic that transcends every religion, essentially saying no matter your religion, there is some form of the golden rule in it. And so what this means is that if you were to ask any culture, any religion, the question that was posed to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? The most common answer would be some form of the golden rule. And that's true today, even in our society. And so this is what Jesus has effectively done. He has taken Israel's most beloved command and taken the most common social ethic and united them together as one. There would be nothing particularly extraordinary about him choosing the Shema as the greatest command. The Jews would have agreed with that. Nor would there be anything particularly extraordinary about him choosing the golden rule as the greatest command. Every culture and every religion and every ethical code would agree with that. But Jesus 
is the first to bind them together inseparably. He says there is no other commandment, one commandment, greater than these. He views these together as one. Together, they form the greatest commandment. And this is what sets Jesus and the Christian ethic apart. In binding them together as one, each becomes what the other desperately needs. The command to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is begging for application. How do I do this? And similarly, the command to love my neighbor as myself is crying out for a foundation. Why should I do this? But when they come together, they satisfy the other. Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, but what does that mean? Is it words that we say? Is it a feeling that we have? Practically, what does love for God look like? Jesus says, love your neighbor. And so in this way, love for my neighbor becomes my expression of love for my God. But now we also have a foundation for love of neighbor. This high and lofty love your neighbor as yourself ethic that we all love finally has a reason to stand upon. Every religion, every culture ethic tells us I should love my neighbor as myself, but our question should be why? Why should I do that? A secular ethic would say, well, it's just good for humanity. Well, why should I care about humanity more than myself? In fact, the very philosophy that undergirds secular thinking says that I should be concerned about my survival over my neighbor. If I'm a part of the majority culture, I should do everything in my power to retain that power. If I'm a part of the minority culture, I should revolt. I should riot to overturn that power and seize power for myself. Is this not the way of Darwinian survival? Well, the religious would say, well, okay, but that's, that's not what we say. We would say, obey this ethic. Why? So that you will be rewarded. Love your neighbor as yourself will get me to heaven or some other spiritual reward like an inner peace, a contentment, uh, a karma thing. Well, that's just a backhanded way of loving myself, is it not? I'm not loving my neighbor. I'm using my neighbor. I'm exploiting my neighbor. I'm loving my neighbor only as a way to love myself. The golden rule is begging for a foundation, begging for someone to answer the question, why should I love my neighbor? Well, that's what Jesus has done. Why love your neighbor as yourself? Because you love God with your whole self, and that is what your supreme love is calling you to do. The God you love has singled out your neighbor, saying, in essence, if you want to love me, here I am in your neighbor, ready to be loved. So in uniting these two together, what Jesus has done has given us um, application to love for God and foundation to love for neighbor. Our vertical love is now expressed horizontally and our, our, our horizontal love is now motivated vertically. And when these two things come together as one, then and only then is love fulfilled. Now, let's talk, talk application, specifically as it pertains to where we find ourselves. And when I say application, I mean application for us. Um, and, by us <laughs> and by us, I don't mean America. I mean us. I mean Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, 
to whom I have vowed to love, shepherd, and disciples. I, I disciple. I have taken vows to the Lord for that community, and so that community is who I want to speak to right now. If you're listening in, um, in other ways, bless blessings. I hope you're blessed by this. But God has called me um, first and foremost to speak to uh, the members and regular tenders of TCPC. Um. What that means is I am preaching to a demographic that whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, a demographic that represents what they are rioting against. Taste Creek Presbyterian Church is a mostly white, affluent, big steeple, conservative church in a denomination that in the not too distant past was advocating for segregated churches. That's our tradition. What does love mean for us? Not for the rioters. I'm not telling them how to love. Not even for Donald Trump. I'm not telling him how to love, though I I do think it is part of the church's role to speak prophetically to the state, and that may come. But what does love mean for me and you? Here is my estimation of things as I see it. If our demographic has a blind spot as it pertains to the greatest commandment, to the two parts of the greatest commandment, it would be the second point. We have a tendency to emphasize the vertical and neglect the horizontal. Were I preaching to a progressive mainline denomination congregation, I would tell them they are are overemphasizing the horizontal at the exclusion of the vertical. And I would preach a good old-fashioned vertical message. But I'm not. I'm preaching to TCPC. And our tendency is to love the Lord while failing to love neighbor, which means we aren't loving the Lord like we think we are. And speaking candidly, in our raging partisan world, my greatest fear is that loving our neighbor is not just neglected, it's despised. To speak of love for neighbor to even have the discussion of what it means for white people to love African-American brothers and sisters feels like something we must avoid out of fear of being labeled as progressive or woke or social justice warriors or whatever other weaponized buzzword is out there. Friends, we cannot allow fear of being labeled woke to prevent us from the central Christian ethic of loving our neighbor. So what does love mean for us as our country burns, both literally and metaphorically? I want to speak honest here and say that when I asked that question in my sermon preparation, I was paralyzed. You don't know what you don't know. You can't see what you can't see. And so what I decided to do is reach out to those who do know things I don't know, who can see what I cannot see who have the ability to answer the question, this is what it means to love me. I called Mike Aitchison, a a black uh, brother in the ministry. He attended uh, TCPC while he was at UK. He's now an ordained minister in the PCA. And I just said, Mike, what does love mean for our church right now? If you could say anything to TCPC right now, what would it be? Originally, I was literally going to let him do that. I said, how about you record um, you know, a brief five-minute word to our church 
about what love means right now, and I will literally insert it into my sermon as the application. Uh, but Mike said, no, it would mean more in coming from you. He said, we need white brothers. We need white conservative brothers. We need white reformed confessional PCA brothers to talk about this. There are countless white liberals out there having this discussion. But it means so much when someone like myself is willing to do that. So I'm speaking on behalf of my brother, Mike. I talked to Jerry McLean, another African-American brother. He's a member at Hope Prez, but he, um, he became a Christian through a ministry, a campus ministry, campus outreach and TCPC, and is now seeking himself ordination in the PCA. I talked to Jared. I talked to our mission partner, Andy Longwee, a black brother from Scotland who has an outsider perspective on America's long history with racial tension. You may not think it's an issue, but talk to a black Brit who comes over here and sees how big this issue really is in our culture. I talk to these friends who are more equipped to answer the question, and so let me deliver their thoughts to you. I think I can sum up all that they told me and represent them well with a word to two demographics who are listening to this, those who don't like talking about race and those who really like talking about race. Let me explain. Some listening dislike the race discussion. They think it's a non-issue that we have moved past as a country. They respond to tragedies like Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd with a defense, deflection, the unending what about ism game, what about black on black crime, what about when white people are murdered um, and there are no riots. They minimize and downplay the current racial tensions by pointing to past racial victories that our country has seen, meaning you don't know what real racism looks like. Real racism was Jim Crow and so forth. If that's you, what does love for neighbor look like for you in this hour? I can tell you what my black brothers I talk to want from you. Your humility, your validation, your compassion, your listening ear. It would go so far if you actually conceded that this is real. To quote Mike Agenson loosely, I didn't write the quote down, but the essence of what he said, to just admit that there is something there Something messed up in our culture that leads, that cultivates a Derek Chauvin to place his knee on the neck of an image bearer of God who is pleading for mercy, pleading for just a, a gasp of air. How could a man so callously indifferent with hands in his pockets ignore the plea as he suffocates his life to death? Where does people like this come from? Please acknowledge their pain. Give your neighbor that. You don't have to become a critical race theorist. You shouldn't. You don't have to embrace cultural Marxism. You shouldn't. But you do have to weep with those who weep. And right now, your African-American brothers and sisters are weeping. Your neighbors are weeping. Please do not dismiss their tears. They are crying, begging for those who don't like to talk about race to start talking. To say themselves, enough is enough. 
I'm not ignoring this anymore. I'm not explaining this away anymore. I am ready to love my neighbor. Now to those who love to talk about race, to those amening what I just said right now, and I'm assuming that's the majority of you, by the way, I come with a word from my black brothers to you as well. Less talk, more action. If you're not going to do something about this, if you're not going to befriend the black community, if you're not going to be a part of the solution, then for heaven's sake, stop posting and tweeting about this as if you care. Your MLK quote on Instagram without actual concrete costly love accompanying it does nothing. In fact, it only hurts more. It hurts because it's patronizing as if you know what, you, what it's like when you don't. And it hurts because it's exploitive, using their pain to gain woke credibility. Their pain does not exist for you to score social justice points to appease a social media culture. This thing will change not by posts that get you likes, but by the unseen, mundane inconveniences of love. By friendship. By efforts by standing in solidarity, as you like to say on social media, and you should say it, but by standing in solidarity, by actually standing with your friends. Okay, I'm done. Um, that's what the African-American brothers I talk to, the ones I know, love, and trust would say, and I'm saying it for them because quite frankly, they're tired of saying it. And they need me to be the one who starts getting in trouble for saying these things. But I know these brothers. And I know there is one more thing they would want me to say. They would want me to tell you about Jesus, who unites us together as one. They wouldn't want me to end this sermon without telling you that he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Friends, we are followers of Jesus. Who doesn't tell us to love God and neighbor? He dies because he loves God. And neighbor, why does he bleed? Because he loves God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loves God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness, and he will not cast that aside in the name of love for sinners. And yet, why does he bleed? Because he loves his neighbor and is willing to endure the costs of justice, righteousness, and holiness on behalf of those he loves. The one commanding us to become this has become this for us. Now, beloved of Jesus, show this world Jesus. Love your neighbor like Jesus has loved you. Let me pray. Forgive us, Father, for what we have done to your world. For the ways I have contributed, for the ways we have contributed, 
we, we repent and we lament. Heal our country and let it start in my heart. Let it start in my church. Revive us, O oh God. We need an awakening. Would you waken us? I pray for my hurting brothers and sisters. Would you comfort them? May they know, may they cling to the promise that they have clung to for centuries in this nation. That you are near the brokenhearted. That you are a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Speak tenderly to them, Lord. And may our repentance bring healing. In Jesus' name, amen.